Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. To all of our occupational therapy listeners out there, happy Occupational Therapy Month. On today's episode, we are joined by Parker Gregory, an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, and Dylan Pittman, a certified occupational therapy assistant. We discuss the role of a CODA in a hand therapy practice, the collaborative relationship between an OT and CODA, and the process of bridging from being a CODA to an occupational therapist. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Parker and Dylan. We want to thank Parker and Dylan this evening to join us on the Hands in Motion podcast. We're just going to get started with some brief introductions. So Parker, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from, what area you're currently practicing in, and anything else you want the audience to know. All right. Well, first off, thank you guys for having us. It's an honor to be on here with you guys. So again, my name is Parker Gregory. I am an OT and a CHT. I graduated from the University of Mississippi Medical Center back in 2014, so I've been practicing for eight years or going on eight years. All of those eight years have been in the outpatient hand therapy setting. From the time I went into OT school, I knew I wanted to go that route, so I was fortunate enough to get a a field work in hands and got a job there, so that's kind of where I am currently. I'm currently in Tupelo, Mississippi, practicing in the North Mississippi area again, in that outpatient hand therapy setting. All right. And Dylan, how about you? Thank you guys as well for having us on. We're excited to be here. So my name is Dylan. I'm an OTA. I've practiced for going on six years. I graduated as a code in 2016. And I'm currently bridging actually from OTA to OT at Belmont University in Nashville. So that's been exciting. It's been a lot of fun. I work in outpatient hand therapy. I actually work for the same company that Parker does. So we get to see each other quite a bit. And I live just outside Tupelo, work in the Tupelo area as well. Great. So how long have you guys worked together? So we've been working together for about three years. I started in the Memphis area and moved back closer to home. And I've been with this company that Dylan worked for about three years. Okay. So how does that collaboration work in hand therapy? I know as a CODA, if you think it's difficult for an OT to get in hand therapy, it's even more difficult for a CODA to get into hand therapy. I do know that because I was a CODA for about 10 years before I went back to school. So I just happened to fall into hand therapy by accident, which was kind of lucky on my part, I guess. So how do you work that collaboration in hand therapy between the OT and the CODA? In our specific setting or in our clinic, we're there with each other all the time. There's never a time where you know, Dylan's in there by himself. We're, we're a pretty big clinic in the Tupelo area. So we have multiple OTs, multiple CODAs in the same clinic. So there's a constant collaboration going on with patients, which I really enjoy. And I've honestly never had, had it any other way. I've always been in the same clinic with CODA. They've never, with our CODAs and they've never been in, you know, a clinic by themselves. So as far as that type of supervision goes, I've never really experienced it myself. It's always been nice to just be in the same clinic and just being able to talk 
to them and them talk to us whenever we needed to. Yeah. And I mean, just kind of piggybacking on that, you know, in school and they, in theory, the OTOTA relationship is described as supervisory, but in a lot of ways, it's more of a collaborative relationship in some ways. And, you know, communication of course is key in any setting between the code and the OT, but it's really easy within an, an outpatient hand therapy setting because of that, because you're in the same clinic. And so if we have questions, you know, we can go to the OT or if the OT needs an update on the patient, they can ask us and we're right there. So that's really, really convenient. Mm-hmm. So are there any things as far as responsibilities that you, Parker, specifically give to Dylan as the CODA? Like how comfortable are you with him doing certain treatments, interventions, independently coming up with things on his own. I mean, I know in my relationship with the OTR that I had worked with years and years ago, we got to that point where like, she was like, here's a treatment plan. You know what to do. However, in the beginning, I did need a lot more supervision just because I had not worked in hand therapy before. So where are you guys at in that relationship? So, yeah, exactly what you said. And when I came on board, Dylan had been practicing for a few years. So I can't attest to what Dylan was like the first year of his practice, but (laughs) since I've been here, it's been a piece of cake, to be honest. I mean, Dylan can do just about anything that we can do outside of the evaluation process. So it has been super convenient. It has been a pleasure to work with him. Something I never have to worry about a patient progressing when they're under his care. You know, Dylan is great in all aspects of care, but he can really hone in on what a patient how they want to get better and what's important to them, you know, things like that. And just kind of hone in on that and incorporate that in treatment. So I think he is really good at that. And again, I've never had to worry about any patient that he's, he's got his hands on. Yeah. Great. And Dylan, I know, like I said, from being a CODA, honestly, I feel CODAs and I might get some backlash for this out there, but CODAs are definitely much better at the treatment intervention as far as breaking things down, because that's what we're trained mostly in is picking those modalities, meaning therapeutic exercise or therapeutic intervention, really breaking that apart. Yes, we get that in OT school, but I think it's just drilled so much into the CODA, you know, so I mean, that's just my opinion, but... (laughs) What do you think? <laughs> I remember so much time being spent in Ugh. OTA school on activity analysis. We <laughs> right? hammered that so much and breaking everything down. And it does come in handy because, you know, if you have a walkover splint or if you have some evaluation scheduled, the OTs get tied up or they're busy. The OTAs are left to kind of work with the patients. And so some of the things, you know, you already have planned in your head when they come in the door. I know I want to do this with this patient today. We're going to try this out. And some things, you know, the patient comes in, they're like, hey, this is a new problem I have. This is a new functional limitation I have. What do you think about this? And you need to be able to think on the fly. And like you said, break those activities down, analyze it and be able to create a functional treatment activity that generalizes to their life, you know. So I appreciate our instructors hammering that, you know, in OTA school. Those darn activity analysis, they're horrible. Yes. <laughs> so as so as the PT in the group here, I'm <laughs> very ignorant to this. I've never worked with CODAs, obviously, and really have we have a, a PTA in our sports side, but not I've never worked with one directly. You just mentioned obviously evaluations, 
as a CODA, you were not performing that, but you mentioned walkovers. So that is also included technically as like part of an evaluation. Is that right? Like if somebody just comes over, they just need an orthosis fabricated. That is not something that a CODA can do. It has to go to the OT. Is that correct? Yeah, that is basically like an evaluation. If you're billing an L code, to my understanding, the, the L code in, is inclusive of the evaluation. Yes. So now saying that, like if someone comes in, say a flexor tendon repair comes in, and I know at you know two or three weeks post-op that dorsal blocking splint that I made first visit is going to be cut down to a Manchester splint or you know something like that at the three-week mark. And if I've got that in my plan of care, then I feel completely comfortable with Dylan doing that. And again, I can only speak to my state's laws because I think it varies state by state too, as far as supervision roles. So I don't want to get anybody in trouble out there. So as long as like you have it in your plan of care, like, hey, I anticipate that they might need a relative motion orthosis or they might benefit from, you know, I anticipate maybe they're going to develop a... PIP flexion contracture, and they might need a nighttime orthosis. As long as it's in your plane of care, then if Dylan's, you're seeing that patient that next visit, you can proceed with making that orthosis. That's right. That's right. And we get, you know, I'd say like a generalized training in OTA school for orthotic fabrication, you know, like your wrist cock up and, and a couple of thumb spike and maybe a couple of others. And so I had a general sense of orthotic fabrication, but this kind of ties back into what you were saying about, you know, being able to break into the hand scene as an OTA. If you're going to do that, I will say that I had a general sense of orthotic fabrication coming out of school, but I did a rotation at my current job. So thankfully I was able to get a clinical rotation in a hand therapy setting, but I learned a ton on level two clinicals under a CHT who taught me how to make a lot more orthotics that I did not learn in school because they're, you know, they're training you to become a, a generalist, a general OTA, general practitioner, you know, when you come out. And so, but there's a lot of value in clinicals because I learned a ton about orthotic fabrication there. So as a supervising OT and hand therapy, so how do you facilitate that learning mentorship of a coda, I won't say Dylan per se, but like that where you're, you want to just nurture them, mentorship them to get them to the point of where they need to be or where they want to be in regards to hand therapy. Because like, you know, we had mentioned before, it is difficult to get into that, that area of practice, especially as a, as a, an assistant. Yeah. You know, I, And again, I think that's why it's so beneficial for us to be in the clinic all the time with each other and, you know, just a few steps away. So if we see something new that we know, you know, some of our CODAs that have never seen before or something interesting, you know, we can always call them over and say, hey, check this out. You know, what do you see? And just kind of pick their brain, but also use it as a teaching moment too. same thing for them. You know, if they see something kind of out of the ordinary, they can be like, hey, you know, come check this out. And see what you think. So, yeah. And, and of course, continuing education courses, we all, you know, Dylan's been to some of the same ones I've been to. So just continuing to learn any way and any way you can really. Have y'all ever experienced either with referring providers or even patients who they're scheduled, say with the CODA and the physician's like, hey, no, I want them seeing the CHT. I don't want them seeing the CODA. 
or even a patient coming in saying, wait a minute, you evaluated me. Why am I not being seen by you as the OT? And why am I seeing the CODA? Have y'all ever experienced that? And how do you handle that to say, hey, he has experience. How do you, I guess, educate on your role, Dylan, in the clinic? Yeah, so I've had it probably happen both ways. There are occasions where a surgeon may have a patient with a specific diagnosis and they request a particular therapist, you know, like one of our CHCs. And, you know, we respect that 100%. And then sometimes we have patients that come in and they may ask about, you know, OT versus OTA treatment. And there are times where I feel like that's appropriate and I'll just go consult my OT. And there's times where I'll, you know, ask, can you treat them today? Or what do you think about this? And then there's times where I just, and sometimes my OT will not park. We have another CHT, but also we'll take that time to educate a patient and say, hey, this is the difference in OT and an OTA. Treatment wise, they're very similar. You're going to get quality treatment from an OTA just like you will an OT. And they may speak on our part a little bit and say, hey, they're trained in manual therapy or they're trained in this just to give the patient a little more confidence in the OTA's ability to treat them the same way, you know, or as effectively as an OT could in the clinic. And so I've had that happen. And there's times where I've tried to educate a patient as well in the differences, but also the similarities in, you know, in treatment between an OT and an OTA. And a lot of times the patients respond well to that, honestly. And I think it's a matter of just building a rapport, increasing confidence by educating the patient a lot of times, I think. And I found that as well from a CODA position that I don't remember ever having a really hard time with a patient just because they saw the treatment that I gave them compared to the OT at that time. And it was, it's very similar, you know, yes, the CHT or OT has a little bit better understanding of assessment, but they, I felt most of the patients felt comfortable with my treatment that I provided as well. And, you know, they knew that if there was something that I didn't know, or I needed to consult the OT that she was usually right there and said, Hey, you know, so-and-so is having this problem. What do you think? And the patients often witnessed that collaboration between the two of us. So I think they felt a little bit more at ease. You know, a lot of CODAs, I mean, I know a lot of CODAs that work in hand therapy that they're doing, I mean, debridement, they're doing suture removal. So it's just what the therapist that you're working with and their comfort level with what you're able to do as a CODA. So, I mean, that's just been my experience, you know, in the last several years of my practice. (laughs) I've had a very similar experience. Yeah. I mean, I've not really had any huge negative, especially in a hand clinic. If a code is there, they usually know what they're doing sometimes better than some of the therapists. So, you know, like, cause they're the ones doing a lot of the treatment where the CHTs are taking those walk-ins, those, Hey, the doctor's throwing them over. So they're just doing a lot of orthosis fabrication or whatever, doing the, the evals that are getting thrown in where the, the codas are the ones running the show, you know? Yeah. And just to kind of speak to that and, and, Kara's question as well. Like you said, a lot of times or a walk-in splint comes in, we have to go over there. It almost seems like we're always getting interrupted with when we're sitting down and working with a patient. So we've had multiple patients that have, and if you know Dylan, you know how good he is and likable. And but multiple patients will literally ask for Dylan alone. They don't, they don't want us to come over there. They're like, can, is Dylan going to be able to work with us today? And we're like, yes, Dylan, Dylan can work with you today. <laughs> and then one other thing, as far as like the 
like you said, maybe if a doctor's asking specifically for a CHT, I have had an insurance company, a work comp insurance company, it was a third party provider, say that it had to be CHT only, meaning signed off by CHT. So we, I did run into that when I was in the Memphis area. I haven't yet down in North Mississippi, but that is something that people may see at some point. So another question regarding, and may, maybe this is specific to your practice, but I guess as the OT, do you only see your patients? Whereas Dylan, you mentioned that there's another CHT. Do you take patients from other therapists as well? Like you're not just assigned to one therapist. Right. As far as a supervisory relationship, the majority of the time, Parker and I work for the same company, but in separate clinics. So I'm a lot of times under another CHT and he's my supervisory OT, my supervising therapist. And so I work under him. And there are occasions where depending on the schedule for the day or how patients fall, there are times where I'm supervised by Parker instead. I'm usually not bouncing around per se. I'm usually fall primarily under one therapist or another, but it depends on, I think, the schedule structure for the day, because there are times that Parker comes and covers some at our clinic. So if we have two CHTs in the building, I'm usually being supervised by Parker or the other CHT, and then some of our other coders are the same. So we have a a solid structure as far as a supervisory model, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I've seen some, I guess, PTA situations where like I would be seeing only my patients, I evaluate my patients, I treat my patients, I discharge my patients, whereas the PTA might be seeing some of my patients, but also somebody else, you know, another therapist patients or so there, they, it seems like they're having to do more management of all these different patients. And wait a minute, who was the, the supervising therapist on this one? So they seem to do a better job of managing some of that than, than the therapist does. So I didn't know if that was a similar situation for y'all. I think being used to or being a flexible and being versatile because there are times where Parker, you know, or we have some other, you know, OTs that may come to our clinic for a scheduling reason. And some of their patients that normally go to the other clinic come to our clinic and they may come and brief me and say, all right, patients one, two, and three are coming to this clinic today. I need you to treat these two while I'm treating this one. And I'll just get briefed on it, read up on some notes and get familiar with their case that day, you know, within a few minutes. So I did us, I think there is something to say for, you know, the assistant's ability to kind of be versatile and just flexible in that way. I think you're right on that. And just to add to that, Dylan also has to juggle, you know, usually we have three OTs, sometimes three OTs in the same clinic. A few of them are CHTs. All of us treat just a little differently. We're not all the exact same. So, you know, I'm coming from a different background than these other two therapists. So he's kind of having to juggle, okay, Parker likes treating in this sequence, whereas it doesn't really matter as much over here. You know, so I think that just adds another level to show he's a pretty good juggler. And like he said, versatile. Yeah, I have never been a PTA, a CODA, but I couldn't imagine trying to juggle that as well. Like, oh my gosh, this therapist likes it done this way and I better make sure I do it this way. And and not that you don't have your own, like you have autonomy, you can do, you can carry out a treatment session, but knowing that you still are being supervised and you're carrying out a plan of care set by, set by the therapist. So yeah, that takes a lot of I don't know what the the right term is, but a lot of flexibility, obviously, to be able to to put up with a bunch of therapists too, (laughs) keeping them happy. 
and type A personality therapist, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Aren't all CHTs type A personality? <laughs> I don't know. Parker, do you have a good answer for that? <laughs> I would like to say I'm laid back, but I'm extremely organized. Though, so if you go to my personal clinic that I'm the only one there, everything has its place. And I don't like when it gets out of its place. Yes. That's yes. a good example. I like going to a drawer and knowing exactly what I'm going to pull out of that drawer. And when we go to other clinics, it's not always the case. We're running around trying to find stuff. So <laughs> that's a really good 100% example. Like, agree. We have one CHT like that we work with. And I told Parker not too long ago, he reminds me of like, you know, like the mad scientist who goes around with his hair messed up all the time. And like, he's super bright, but like everything is everywhere on the counters. And like, he knows where everything's at. And I know where things are at because I've worked under, but nobody else does. And then Parker comes over to the clinic and everything is organized. So that's a good example. Yeah. <laughs> just to add to that example, and, and he's actually our boss. So hopefully he doesn't get mad at us saying this. I'm just kidding. I meant that in the um, best way possible. That's right. He'll probably be listening at some point. So one, one day we were in the clinic and we could not find the pinch gauge. I mean, we like, we're looking 15 minutes. We really needed this thing. And it was in its own case sitting on the counter. And we were like, who dare? put this where it's supposed to go. Like we could not find it because it was in its correct spot. So anyway, (laughs) that's pretty bad. (laughs) So I know education wise at this point, OTs are mandatory masters and CODAs are associates. And I know this is happening in PT as well. And who knows what's going to happen in either one. Probably it'll happen in PT first. But I know PTs are mandatory doctorate or PhD doctorate. It's a now clinical doctorate. Okay. But PTAs are still two years. Yeah. So my opinion, you know, they're trying to phase out assistance. Why don't they just have the assistants have a bachelor's degree? Then they have that two extra years. Like, what are your thoughts on on that, or do you have any thoughts or opinions or anybody? <laughs> I mean, coming from an OTA perspective, and I know some PTAs as well, I just, I have thought about that a lot as it's, you know, the transition has been made and we've seen a lot of changes over the past year or two, maybe, and the structure of how the hiring process is going and how you said that's pretty accurate. In some areas, it's almost like they're phasing out assistance. I just see assistance in PT and OT as very valuable. And it seems like they'll be valuable corporately because of the cost effectiveness, because they provide quality treatment with a lower price point for the employer. So, you know, if the transition is going to be made and the OTA or PTA needs to bump up to a bachelor's degree, I would be an advocate for that if it increases their employability. Just because I feel like that OTAs and PTAs have a place and should continue to have a place, you know. Yeah. And that was like disheartening. I know over the past couple of years, even the facility that I work, I mean, they got rid of like four or five PTAs and did not replace them because with changes in Medicare and with them not being able to treat patients and, and currently where I'm at, we have no OT assistance. And there are times that I'd love to have an assistant to be able to work with, with me and just you know, kind of having that team approach again would be great, but I just don't want to lose the assistant in the therapy practice because I, like you said, Dylan, that it's extremely valuable or they are extremely valuable and I just want to see them 
be kind of phased out. Yeah, it's really a shame what insurance companies are doing, you know, with cuts and and things like that. And I mean, and maybe people a lot smarter than me probably have the answers to this. But in my mind, it's kind of like a doctor and a nurse practitioner. Like you can go to a nurse practitioner and be prescribed, you know, whatever, X, Y, and Z. And, you know, they're, again, I don't know the billing and all of that, but it seems like insurances aren't having any problem with that model. What's the difference in an, you know, an OT, an OTA or PT and a PTA? You know, I know there's a little bit of education difference there, but I don't know. It just seems like it's the same model to me. I don't know why they're hurting the profession like they are. So Dylan, tell us a little bit about the transition. I know you said that you're transitioning from a CODA going to like a bridge program. I know nothing about this. So enlighten me about this bridge program that you're doing and how you're using your experience as a CODA in hopes of becoming a CHT. So I think for some people going straight through to OT school is the perfect route. I would say for me, I'm 100% happy with the route that I went because when I went through OTA school, that was a position that was clinically where I wanted to be. And then as I spent some time in clinic, I figured out, okay, I want to, you know, advance my career some. And there are some, there are some limits as far as, you know, for example, being able to create a plan of care and evaluate a patient. There's some limits just structurally, you know, that you can't accomplish as an OTA. And so, I decided I want to go back to school, but I waited three or four years. I think the minimum that you have to be working as an OTA is one year before you can apply to the program at Belmont University, which is where I'm at. For example, there are other programs out there. I waited three to four years and I'm glad I did because I'm in class with other OTAs. Some of them have been in practice five years. Some of them have been in practice for 20 years and we all have been in practice in different areas. And so in my program, in my experience, I've learned almost as much, if not just as much from my classmates as I have from my professors, because they bring so much clinical experience to the table. And also another point is, like you said, I feel so much more comfortable in school having clinical experience under my belt. And so when we learn, we go back and learn, you know, the OT evaluation process or learn some of the more theoretical principles in OT and some of the things that you just build upon from OTA school, it makes so much more sense and it comes so much more easily because you've been in clinic. And if they use a case study, oh, I saw one of those six months ago. I can relate to that. And it just made the process so much easier. And I'm not saying that school was easy. It was challenging, but it it was definitely a lot more doable and a lot more relatable for all of us, me and all my classmates, because we already have been in practice as an OTA. Yeah, Dylan, I would agree. It made so much more sense. I think I was practicing about eight years before I went back. And it was like, I don't want to say it was a piece of cake, but it was like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. Oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. And you didn't have to learn all those things that if you went straight through, it was just so much more applicable. You know, you can take what you learned and go back in the clinic and not that you could practice as an OT, but you can practice what you just learned in class that, you know, the weekend before the week before, whenever you attended class. So you could apply it almost immediately, not necessarily as an OT because you're not an OT yet, but you had a better idea of what was going to come out of that, you know? Right. And like for our program, like you said, you know, we had some lab practicums and the weekends that we were there on live weekends, but also 
when you come back to your nine to five or eight to five, you know, Monday through Friday job, that is your lab practicum. You know, when you're an OTA, you can take all the skills you just learned. And like you said, just apply it straight to your practice, which was really beneficial. Whereas if you went traditionally, you had to wait till your clinic, your clinical to be able to practice any of that. So I would never have wanted to do it any other way. It took me longer, but I think I got much more out of it that way. That's how I feel. I agree with that. So do you have to do clinical rotations, whatever y'all call them in, in OT? Do you have to do those at the end of this program or mixed in or you working your job? Does that count? So in the program that I'm in, we do level ones and level two field works. And so we do three to four rotations, just like if you were going through a traditional OT school. And so that's where I'm at right now. I'm in my level two field works. And that is one of the more challenging aspects of a bridge program is that you do have to stop employment and stop paid work as an OTA to go do unpaid clinicals, you know? So that's a little bit of a challenge. You have to scratch your head and do some number crunching. How am I going to survive for six months? You know, but it's been really valuable because I work in hands. And so I'm, and one of my level twos finishing up right now, and I'm about to start another 12-week rotation, and then I'll graduate. But I've been able to choose some other practice areas, and I did that on purpose just because I wanted to be more well-rounded. And my last rotation, I wrapped it up by going to an orthopedic clinic, and I'll be doing hand therapy there. So I feel like wrapping up there, I'll be able to take those hand skills right back to my job when I graduate. So, yes, to answer your question, we do have to do clinicals separate from our employment. Parker, how is that? worked or how has I guess y'all's company supported Dylan in going back to OT school and doing this bridge program? Yeah, a hundred percent behind him. And you know, we've we've actually hired his wife who is an OTA and <laughs> she's basically taken his place. <laughs> so not really, of course. He's coming back. He he obviously has his spot. He will he will be back. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's been tough, you know, not having Dylan in the clinic. We'll have many patients come in and be like, you know, where's he at? But no, it, it, it's been good. We, we obviously are very supportive of Dylan and him trying to further his education and to become an OT and one day a CHD. I'm going to go ahead and speak that into existence. Right. <laughs> right. Put it out there. That's really nice that you have a, a company that supports that and supports the education and I did a fellowship and my company kept my position for the six months, seven months that I was gone. And it's, it's reassuring to know that, Hey, I'm furthering my education and it's not only adding value to you, Dylan, and it's obviously going to, to do many things for you in the future, but it also benefits the company as well. And they're going to gain a therapist, an OTR and, or whatever y'all's letters are, and be able to to just you can jump right back in. So I think that's that's really you're fortunate to work for a company that allows that. Yeah, it's made all the difference having that support network behind me. You know, being able to work around which way I have a lot of weekends, and so it doesn't cut into my work schedule a lot. But any kind of a school assignments or anything that would infringe upon my work hours or anything that comes up like that, they've been 100% supportive. And I mean, I think they look at it as, you know, a little bit of an investment. We're getting a therapist back. But also for me, it's been a huge help for me, helping me just be able to complete it, the program. So So, I kind of heard you guys have a little side job. (laughs) So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys do? 
Sure. So back in 2020, when COVID hit, we didn't have anything else to do because nobody was coming to therapy, right? So Dylan had actually mentioned to me before, he kind of thought about starting a podcast, you know, about OT in general and things like that. And, uh, you know, I'd never really thought about it, but a month or two later, I came up to him and I was like, hey, let's, how about we do a YouTube channel and an Instagram page, just create like a social media presence, because I feel like there's a lack of good information, good quality information for people in the hand therapy world. Even in school, sometimes you, you kind of breeze over that in OT school because you're covering so much. You don't hone in on the hand therapy side because very few OTs are actually in the hand therapy field. So we felt like there's just this lack of education out there. So we wanted to, to create basically free education and put it on our channel. And, you know, we have like all these playlists on like specific assessments that you would do. And it would go through, you know, from start to finish how you would do that. We've got taping playlist, diagnosis playlist, you name it, it's on there. And of course, we just just getting started a year or two ago, we've got a lot long way to go. But uh, and then the same thing with Instagram, it's just another way to reach this new generation. You know, everybody's on social media. So you kind of have to conform to their ways. You ought to see us trying to make a TikTok. We feel like we're 50 <laughs> years old. <laughs> because you have to be relevant or nobody's going to watch your stuff. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I, I can't make a TikTok. <laughs> yeah. No. I love watching that. I have to say, I was so hesitant. I'm like, I'm too old to even just have a TikTok. And one of my cousin's husband was like, oh, no, there's so many videos. There's so you can learn all sorts of stuff. And I thought, you you have to be kidding me. All I hear about is people doing these dances and whatever. You get sucked in. And people, <laughs> people are hilarious. Like, if you just need to, I don't know, get your mind off of whatever, pull up TikTok and just <laughs> whatever that for you pages that you just can scroll and see how, how funny people are. But I think you're right. Like, we're not like, I'm still a paper and book kind of person. And I was just at one of the schools last week and not a single person wanted a piece of paper. They all had their laptops or their tablets or whatever. And they're not using what I use even 15 mm -hmm. years ago. And so I think embracing the technology and the way that people are getting their information. So I think you're somewhat ahead of the curve here and, especially with TikTok and <laughs> that y'all are, y'all have the guts to put yourselves out there like that. Cause I don't. <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of dad joke level content out there. So not saying we're funny by any stretch, but, and, and I approached Dylan, you know, number one, we just jail really well together, but he's also, if you haven't noticed already, Dylan wears a lot of hats. He's also a professional videographer on the side. He does wedding videos. Oh, so wow. he's got Impressive. all this equipment and knowledge of editing videos. And I'm like, and I don't have that knowledge at all. So I'm like, <laughs> hey, let's do this together. So, And Parker handles all of our marketing and management. And so <laughs> yeah. it works well together. Yeah, good teamwork. So what is the name of your channel or your Instagram? Yeah, where can people find you? So if you just search the upper hand and in Instagram, it should at this point pop up. We're around 20,000 followers now. Oh, good. And then same thing with YouTube. You should be able to type in the upper hand and find us. And we've got a pretty prominent 
logo is the same on both channels. So, and pun intended on that with our name. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it. I like it. Well, people will have to check that out. But we just felt like when we created it, though, you know, like Parker said, you know, being able to educate younger generations, some people not being the traditional learners. We've noticed that, you know, especially in the last few years with the prevalence of like TikTok and things like that, information is presented so fast and in such short bits. You know, people, you know, our brains can receive much more, much more quickly than we realize, especially, you know, you know, visually. And I think they have tapped into that. And so that's what we're trying to tap into is being able to present a lot of quality information quick and effectively, because if you don't, and you know, there's video that's boring that click off really quick. And so it's been a challenge. It's been fun to try to learn as we go on how to create quality videos, but it's been fun. That's great. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We appreciate the discussion and I'm sure our listeners will as well. And don't forget to check out the upper hand on YouTube and Instagram and anywhere else. I don't know, but feel free to check them out. But thanks again for spending the last 45 minutes or so with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having us on and for your time as well. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. You know, this is great. I love the podcast and just hearing other therapists and in the hand therapy world talking. It's just it's just good to have that good quality content. So I appreciate you guys. And again, we want to wish all of our occupational therapy listeners a happy occupational therapy month. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.